We are in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to try to get through the whole chapter tonight. Um, Before we jump into the theme, uh, let me just ask you guys a question. This is confession time. How many of you, for those of you who have vehicles, how many of you get your oil changed every 3,000 miles or three months? Anybody? Okay, so like two of you, three of you. Okay, how many of you on the flip side, how many of you wait like, nine months, maybe even a year, maybe like 10,000 miles. Anybody in that boat? A couple of you, a couple of you. Okay, well, it may not be any indicator at all, but it could tell us how you view integrity. You see, when it's under the hood, to some degree, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? And so you think to yourself, well, is it really that big of a deal? Like, I got to deal with what's in front of me, and I'm sure things are going on just fine in that engine, and, and I don't need to worry about it. But when it comes to integrity, our God is a mechanic of the soul, and his Holy Spirit dwells in every believer, and it's always turning things here and turning things there and cleaning house and changing gears. He's doing things in a way that he's keeping us, uh, and he's keeping us or moving us in the direction of being um, men and women of integrity. Now, Chapter 4 here in 1 Samuel is all about a battle. And there's a bunch of battles in First and Second Samuel. But this battle is a bad one. And the Israelites get beat up, and it's not good at all. But what they don't realize at the beginning is that all of the junk we've been reading about in chapters 1, 2, and 3 with Eli and his sons who were priests, and, um, and they had all these moral failures, God said, I'm going to judge you guys. I'm going to end this dynasty, this family line of priests, and I'm going to punish you guys for it. We see all that behind the scenes. Now the whole nation of Israel is going to be punished for what was going on behind the scenes with its leaders. And so it's about moral failure or a lack of integrity that led to the whole nation paying the price. You see, that's what happens with integrity. It always impacts more people than you, right? The deceit at the beginning is that, like a temptation, a desire of your own, it's about you, yourself, and I, but then God always shows that more people are impacted than you originally thought. And so when we talk about integrity, some of you know, but if not, the, the root word for integrity is integer, and it's a mathematic term, meaning whole number. And so when we say integrity, what we're talking about is your life being the same in public as it is in private, or vice versa. It's you being one person in all circumstances. So you don't have this behind-the-scenes life that contradicts the life that people see. Now, this is incredibly important when it comes to being part of the church because God unifies us in community by his holiness and he expects his people to walk in righteousness and to reflect that holiness and so if there is a break in the reflection the ripples of that impact a whole bunch of people around us and Jesus promises in the gospels that what is done in the dark will be brought to the light It always is. 
And so tonight is scary because we see in the Old Testament, on the other side of the cross, we see how moral failure is judged. That it's just flat out sinful and there is a crazy seriousness to sin. And God just says, you know what? It deserves death. Boom. This is what it looks like. And it's a slaughter. But on the flip side of the cross in which we live, and for those who have placed their faith in Christ, we see the beauty of the gospel tonight in this. So as we walk through this tonight, and God prompts you when it comes to uh, who you are behind the scenes or what's going on under the hood, I want you to ask yourself a couple questions. Because we know that we all make mistakes, we all fail, even as believers. So the first question I want you to ask yourself is what does restoration from sin, what does it look like for you? That's a really important question for believers. Because if you know, I'm going to make mistakes, not that we strive to, not that we don't love repentance, but the realization, I'm going to make mistakes. But what does restoration look like for me? It's going to tell you a lot about your walk with God. And the second question is, am I oblivious to a temptation that's happening right now? Am I oblivious to a temptation that's happening right now? So think about those things as we walk through this. Um, this, is, this is one of those sermons, I'll be honest, that I write and I don't get super excited about until like right beforehand. And, and then I'm like, oh man, this could be powerful. So I hope it is powerful for you as it has been for me. Let's jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Again, I always preach out of the ESV, so if you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along. Verse 1 says, and the, word of the Lord came to, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. So remember, during this time um, of the judges with Samson and then all the way through into the kings, they're always fighting, it seems like, the same group of people, the Philistines. They're, they're a major player and opponent against Israel. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now the Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Verses 3 and 4. And when they came to the camp the elders of Israel said why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? I love that. Everything is spiritual, right? Like every battle ultimately comes back between us and God. Like everything is spiritual. They recognized it. They knew. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. All right, let's park there for a little bit. First thing we see is when it comes to battles, the inward precedes the outward. The inward precedes the outward. So here's what's going on. Back in the day, there were times where armies fighting together, man, they had they had training and they had all the gear they needed, and it was well equipped and it and it was what we think 
when we think of, of warriors. But at this point, post-judges, pre-David as king, pre-Saul as king, it was kind of crazy. It was random um, groups of people, the 12 tribes of Israel, getting together. They all lived in different areas, a lot of them semi-nomadic. They were in tents at the end of this chapter. It says they went back to their tents, and they would come, some of them skilled and trained to fight, and some of them absolutely not. And it says uh, in the Hebrew, when it said they fought here earlier in verse 1 or 2, that um, it, was, it was in an open field, and it was literally an uncultivated land. So it's like a bunch of these little towns. It's like, okay, Abilene and, and uh, little Riley, Kansas, and, and Randolph, all these little towns, you get them together. They're going to go on the Kanza Prairie just outside of Manhattan, and they're going to battle. Like, they're going to fight there, and it's going to be uh, wonderful. Like, if you put yourself there, it was not super well put together. But the history for the Israelites is that even though they were looked at as the foreigners, the immigrants, the people who already dwelt in the land, they looked at them and they're like, man, we hate you guys, you're punks. But your God <laughs> precedes you, his reputation precedes him. And we know he's scary. And so the Israelites were thinking, man, we expect to win. We're dumbfounded that somehow we could be in this battle and lose. And so they immediately turn and think, man, what is going on? Why did God defeat us? Because we know this is all about what he's doing. But little did they know, at that point, they're still oblivious that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is being carried out on all of Israel because of the lack of integrity and the moral failure of the leaders behind the scenes. What do you think Eli's thinking right now? We're going to get to him after a bit. What do you think he's thinking? He's back in Shiloh, sicker than a dog knowing judgment is coming and a whole bunch of other people outside his family is going to feel what should just be coming to his house. Mm. Probably not very fun. You see, for us, the battle obviously looks different. Um, for us, it's a spiritual battle. For many of us, though, we recognize we, we want to be disciple makers. We want to be used in the kingdom of God. We want this thing to expand. So we're out there, we're ministering to people. Maybe it's our job, maybe it's just the calling God has given us, but we're out there trying to make a difference. And sometimes it looks really good, right? Uh, it looks like we're making progress, and, and they respect us. The people we work with, they respect us, they look at us. But God is always, you know it, he's always prompting you and saying, like, is what's going on behind the scenes matching up and equal to what people see outside? Like, if you made disciples exactly like you are, would that be good? <laughs> would that be good? They say you can teach what you want to be, but you only reproduce what you are. And God's saying, I don't really care that much about what you think you can do for me as much as I care about what you're allowing me to do inside of you. I care about your heart. And we always got to be reminded about how much God cares about what's going on in here. They're dumbfounded because of what's being revealed. When it comes to character, when it comes to integrity, it is not born on the battlefield. It is revealed in the fight, right? Like this is why Jesus says, build your house on the rock, and then when what comes? The storm comes to people. He doesn't say, hey, wait till the storm and then start building something. No, integrity and character, it's built years in advance. Months, weeks, days. It's being cultivated in the boring times. 
And so there's some of you today, there's some single folks in here thinking, man, I, I, I know God has a lot going for me. Like he wants me to do some things and I'm excited about the future and all that. But like, I just want to be lazy right now. And God's saying, there's going to be a time five years from now, you're going to get in a fight with your spouse and it's going to be a little bit public and you're going to you're going to act like you shouldn't act. And all that junk is going to come out like you don't have a clue about it right now. But guess what? Your character and how you choose to respond in a fight five years from now is <laughs> is being cultivated right now in your laziness. You see, but they made a big mistake. And in verses 3 and 4, it shows it. They forgot the ark. The ark, remember, it is literally the physical manifestation of the presence of God. So different than the New Testament, we obviously see God manifest himself through first Jesus, but then his Holy Spirit dwelling in each one of us is the glory of God. So back in the day, though, it, it's a physical location. That's why the temple's so important, because God physically dwells there, not that he couldn't dwell other places, but he said, I'm going to choose to be in here. This is my house. And so when they say, go get the ark, they're saying, get God's presence and bring it back. Bring it back. But integrity issues always start when man relies on their own strength, and it is a slow fade. And they found out, we just got our bums kicked because we didn't have God's presence here. And so we were trying to do this on our own. When it comes to temptation and the enemy's attack on your life, you can always expect at any time, good time, bad time, you can always expect that the road to temptation is generally going to involve these three things, the three eyes of temptation. And the enemy is going to initiate, he's going to isolate, and he's going to interrogate. And you can see this happening over and over and over in your life. And the more you mature in Christ, the more you can recognize it from the get-go. And remember, truth is what sets us free. So for any of these things, we have uh, truth that we put against the enemy, and it's going to free us in these temptations. But let's, let's just think about this. Go back to the first one. The enemy is going to initiate. How many people, when falling into temptation, remember, temptation is not the sin, it's the response to the temptation that can be the sin how many people are like you know what cheated on my spouse and here's how it went down woke up one day and i was like i'm gonna go cheat on my spouse and so i went and i cheated on my spouse and i came back and i said hey i fell into temptation cheat on my like that that story generally doesn't exist it's hey i was walking down the road and i i thought things were good and then boom i kind of got caught off guard because the enemy is going to initiate he's going to initiate let me ask you this about the israelites who told them You've read the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. Who told them to go fight the Philistines? The answer is we don't know. But we don't see in here God saying, hey, go fight them. The enemy does that. He initiates, he draws people out, and he says, come, fight me. And he usually does it with deceit, saying, I got something better for you. I'm moving in this direction. You tired right now? You feel like you need a change right now? I got something good for you. And so then, after he initiates, he always isolates. I could give you more stories of, of people that I've seen in ministry where the enemy, man, they get on fire just a little bit for God, and the enemy says, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to trick you. I'm going to deceive you. I'm going to get you busy at work. I'm going to get you busy with other things. I'm going to take you away from Christian community. I don't want people who listen to God to be around you. I need you to get out of the Word of God. I'm going to make things uh, to where you can just be by yourself. 
because he knows if he can isolate you, the chance of him tricking you goes up a lot. And so the Israelites are out on the battlefield saying, man, we're here. The presence of God is there. And guess what? We didn't realize how scary it is, but we just got beat up. And third, he's always going to interrogate you. I can't tell you how many times I find believers who, when they're in council or, or they're just being discipled, and they'll tell you thoughts like, man, I just don't feel like I'm good enough. You say, who told you you're not good enough? I just have those thoughts. Where do those thoughts come from? How many times has God ever told you, man, I hate you. I don't love you. You're worthless. I can't do this. You're never good enough. When is the last time you, unless you've got multiple personalities or something, were accusational against yourself? Like if you get accusational thinking going on, there might be some influence from the enemy trying to get in there and whisper and say, you know what? I want you to question God's promises. I want you to question what God said. Did God really say that? You know what? Man, if people knew what you did behind the scenes, if they saw you at 11 o'clock Friday night, man, oh, they would call you a hypocrite. He's going to interrogate you. He's going to beat you down and make you question God's word. He's going to trick you. And you can always tell you're going to be smack dab in the middle of temptation when your, your level of self-centeredness starts to rise. Because he wants the focus to be on you. He wants to get you away, and, and he wants you to stop focusing on God, and he wants to focus on you. Let me ask you this. How focused on yourself are you right now? It's an odd question. But how focused on yourself are you? If you're like me, you love a little bit of me time, right? For Tara and I, 8 o'clock, little Silas, he's in bed, and, and then we just want to relax. And it's good, but sometimes it's bad because we let our guard down. All day long, I'm talking to God. I'm thinking about God. I'm ministering to God. But then at 8 o'clock, it seems like every night I'm just like, man, I just got to relax. My mind, I just, need, I just need to relax. And so there's been times where we'll zone out each on our own device or computer for like an hour or two, and then we get, catch ourselves we're like, what are we doing? This is crazy. But I, I remember I told you guys like a month ago that I was thinking when I was in McPherson uh, one day about maybe we need a new car, right? And so, and I'm still, we're still debating like on whether that is a real temptation or if that's actually something we should do. But I found and I look over the last several months, I found that that time from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, whenever we go to bed, when it's a me time in my household, I found that some of the worst decisions come during that time. Because we let our guard down and we're so focused on ourselves. And so I found myself the other night focused on finding a car online. The thought popped back in my mind, and so I started looking online, and I get obsessed. And, and Tara said, you know what, don't even look online, because once you get in, like, you're going you're gonna to do something. I'm like, no, I'm not going to buy a car I'm not going to do this. Now, you're probably expecting me to tell you I bought a car, but I didn't buy a car. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, Monday, Tara wasn't expecting me home from work for lunch because I was having a meeting with someone, and the meeting ended shorter than I thought. And so I was like, oh, I could come home for lunch. And, man, I was so torn because all I wanted to do was sit in my office instead of seeing my wife and son and look at cars online. And I thought, what kind of sick dude are you? Like, that's, I choose that today. 
And last night, Tara and I were talking, and she was so stressed because she was talking about having babies and family stuff. And, and I was stressed because I was like, what car are we going to get? And, and then we were talking about vacation last week, and we were talking about all this stuff. And finally, after like an hour, we just were like, man, I don't want to talk about any of it. It all feels so worthless. And it pales in comparison. Like, we're trying to find some joy in this stuff. We can't find the joy anywhere. We've been tricked to spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff, but like we just can't find joy in any of it. And last night was one of those nights where it just kind of came crashing down. And it's scary because when you let your guard down, that's what the enemy wants you to do. He says, there's joy in other things. Go find it there. It's not about God and your communion with him. You don't need his presence. Go, go jump into something else. Temptation loves to come in when you have a lack of fulfillment in Christ. Like if you're questioning in your soul, man, is Jesus really enough? When you're questioning like how good is it just to spend time with God? If it's not really enough, man, the devil loves to tempt you in that moment because he knows he can make you go chasing something else. But I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot harder to fall in temptation when you're caught up in God's presence. It's a whole lot harder to make dumb decisions when you're focused not on your kingdom or the me time, but you're focused on him and his kingdom. Like, I don't look back at the dumb decisions I've made as a believer and think, you know what, I was totally caught up just in love with Jesus. I was communion, man, it was good. I could sense the presence of God in my life. And I was, I was talking to him and I was talking to him, and then I made a really dumb decision. Like, I... That's usually not the context. The context is I got carried away with my own life and my own stuff. And, and I'm telling you what, most of the stressors in your life probably come from dumb decisions made during the me time. Because if you try to find joy or rest outside of the presence of God, it will always deceive you. It might look like it's available, but it's not really available. It's not really rest. It's not really joy. It's fleeting. We're going to talk more. An underlying theme in this is that they saw the issue here was the presence of God wasn't with them. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Verses 5 and 6. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Oh, you could picture, they're pumped up. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Remember, they got beat up by Samson. They got beat up in the past by the Israelites. And they know the Israelites' history. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And then it gets weird. Verse 9, I don't know what happened between verse 8 and 9, but something happened. Because it sounds like they're going to run. But then in verse 9 it says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, 
died. Remember the prophecy uh, to Eli was that he would know this judgment was coming when he heard his two sons died on the same day, and it is being fulfilled. Second thing we see after verse 11 is there is no power in our own strength. There's no power in our own strength. So, the Israelites, the elders get together and they figure it out. What's missing here? What's missing is the presence of God. So, let's bring the ark. And we know in the past, man, when the ark comes, remember, um, Jericho, walking around, six, seven days, says they had the ark of the covenant and it, boom, was the presence of God and it changed things. The walls fell. And so they're probably thinking the same thing, like, oh, no, the ark is coming. we got to get God's presence. Let's get it. But here's God saying, you can't manipulate me. You can't say, hey, you didn't want me earlier, but I'll take you now because we, we want something from you. We don't want to lose anymore. We want to win. Man, isn't that us? And how acceptable is that for Christians? All right, remember, the presence of God dwells in us now, not in some ark. But how acceptable is it for the presence of God to be in us, and yet we ignore him? Because if he's in us, it's one thing if he's way over there, to just not be around it. But if he's in us, you've got to go out of your way to ignore him. You can't get away from your own thoughts. So how much more can you not get away from the Holy Spirit that lives in you? So like, we're squelching him. It should be hard for a believer to say, I don't experience the presence of God. It should be hard for us to say, I don't hear from God. If he's really in us. And it's become so acceptable for us to say, you know what, I'll call on you when life gets hard and the battles get hard and, and, and then I need you. Like that, some of the most mature Christians, like that's, that's, their, that's most of their communion with God. Yeah, I called on them during the hard times. And God's saying, that's not okay. Not that he won't show up. Not that he doesn't love you. But his plan is not just to be called on during the hard times. And even the Philistines, who are a bunch of non-believers, don't buy it. <laughs> right? So they, they see how this story has played out in the past. And it looks like between verses 8 and 9 that they're just going to leave. And they're going to be like, you know what, let's flee. And in the past, the story goes, God crushes them, Israel, Israel wins, God gets glory, everything's good. But this time, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You see, the shouts of men, <laughs> the shouts of men who walk in their own strength and the shouts of men who actually depend and trust in God must sound different because even the non-believing Philistines could recognize a difference. If Israel really trusted in God, they're not pulling in the ark halfway through the battle. Eli's sons would have repented back in the day when what was done in the dark was brought to light. The ark would have been in the battle from the beginning. And so they're really just walking in their own strength. How many times when you screw up, when you have a moral failure behind the scenes, when you get in trouble with lust or pornography or gossip or slander or you fill in the blank with our greed, whatever it might be, do you have this thought? Man, I just got to do better. 
When you recognize the problem is, I was relying on my own strength, and man, I wasn't relying on God's presence and power, you think to yourself this, I just got to do better. I got to try harder. We've got that pick ourselves up by the bootstrap mentality. And I don't want to say that there's none of our will involved, but it's got to be gelling with God's will. And, And here's the thing. What's crazy to me is that for some of us, the road to moral failure, we think, is the exact same road to repentance and restoration. Because the road to moral failure is that we tried to do this on our own, and that we weren't impacted by God's presence, and that we let ourselves slip into this place where we're like, you know what, it's my strength, and so I'm going to see how far it gets me. And we wouldn't say that to ourselves, but that's what's going on. And so we think on the flip side, you know what, man, I screwed up. I made a mistake. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to do this. What's the answer? What's the cure? Let's just do the same thing that got me into this. Picking myself up by my own strength. And God's saying, it ain't got nothing. Go back out there and fight, Israel. You can bring me into this, but if I'm not in it, I'm not in it. And you ain't going to win. And 4,000 were killed the first time. 30,000 will be killed the second time. Go ahead and do this. Try to manipulate me and do this on your own strength. It don't work. You see, gospel-centered repentance is a complete submission to the Spirit's leading and the Spirit's power. When we think of repentance, we think of what? Turning from our sin, right? But it's not so much the direction, okay, as it is the power in which we walk away from the sin. Someone tells you, you need to repent from your sin. You think, okay, I recognize what happened, and I'm going to turn. I'm going to just walk the other direction. God's saying, you know what? You can walk the other direction, but you're going to walk right into the next moral failure. If you don't decide from this sin, you know what? The problem wasn't my direction that led me into this sin as much as it was the power that I was walking in or the lack thereof. Let me read to you a book that was timely for me this week. It's a short book. How many of you heard an old boy, Brother Lawrence, in a book called Practicing the Presence of God? He was uh, an old monk from the 1600s in Europe. He struggled. He was saved at 18, and for the first 10 years of his life in Christ, he, he was so insecure, thinking that he wasn't truly saved, and he just struggled to even talk to God. But then he just started trusting God, and for the last 30 years of his life, he had a communion with God that was so sweet. And I think as believers, so oftentimes, particularly those of us who are struggling with habitual sin here, we get so used to the power of the sin that, like, hey, we recognize, man, I'm saved, but I do not see any way out of this sin. Like, I do not see how somehow I'm going to have more power in me through the Holy Spirit. I mean, I trust it, but I just don't see how it's going to happen. Then the sin, it keeps on beating me up. Remember, when you get saved, Jesus Christ saves you from the consequence and the punishment of your sin, but he saves you from the power of your current temptations And in the future, he's going to save us from the presence of sin when we're in heaven and there is no sin. 
punishment, power, and presence. This old boy, Brother Lawrence, he's talking, he he has several conversations, and it ends up being written into a book. But he, he says, just to give you kind of a glimpse into his life, Brother Lawrence insisted to be constantly aware of God's presence. It is necessary to form the habit of continually talking with him throughout each day. To think that we must abandon conversation with him in order to deal with the world is erroneous. Instead, as we nourish our souls by seeing God in exaltation, we derive a great joy at being his. This entire book, as short as it is, is all about this dude who's just constantly communing with God. And he becomes known in the monastery for simply talking to God throughout the day. And he says he experiences God's presence so much as he meditates on him and what Christ has done for us. And he just talks to him back and forth that there was times where he'd be working in the kitchen where he would experience God's presence so much that he would just say, God, it's too much. It's too much. And he would say he would pray that other people could experience the overflow that he's experiencing when it comes to God's presence. Like, God, you've overwhelmed me so much with your presence. Give this to the other people. But he would say, sometimes I'd fall into sin. And I wouldn't scream and shout and, and fall on my face. I would, just, I would just say, God, I cannot do anything, very plainly, I cannot do anything apart from your power. And he said, I would have power then. And when he would do good, he would say, God, I cannot do anything good without your power. And he would talk about just very plainly how he just just talks to God and that he gets everything he needs and that temptation all of a sudden isn't the, the incredibly powerful, fearful thing that he once faced. But he's so caught up in the presence of God that he just has a continuous power walking in the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing because I can't tell you how many times I've discipled and counseled people and even felt this in my own life, that we get so caught up by the power of sin, it just doesn't feel like anything's ever going to change. Like, be honest, what do you struggle with the most? What have you struggled with the most your whole life? Do you right now in this moment feel like that's ever going to change? That God's going to somehow sanctify that part of you. It's not like he needs to die again for that part of your life. The power is there. It's just whether we'll walk in that. To be utterly dependent on the presence of God, knowing he's in us, but are we really communing with him? I'm telling you what, there are so many more levels of experience when it comes to our relationship with Christ that most Americans will never ever tap into and most of them won't even know about, including myself. The shallowness of our communion with God is why the sin seems so powerful. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am who I am 
I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he judged Israel for 40 years. Next thing we see is actually a question. Do moral failures kill us? So you got a picture, Eli, sick to his stomach because the ark of God is gone. He knows through the judgment that God's already told him that his sons are going to die and that he will die. But he doesn't know that the ark of God is going to be captured. And that's what really breaks his heart. That the sins I refuse to repent of with my children and confront them on in the early years of their sinful behavior is now impacting everyone in this nation. His legacy is shattered because he didn't stop his boys. And God says, you know what? It was never just about your boys. It was about the whole nation. But Eli, in all those years, just kept doing his priestly duties, thinking, I'm serving the nation, I'm serving the nation. And God's saying, what you do behind closed doors will ultimately serve them more than what you do in front of their face. So what happens to us? For those of us who believe in Christ, who follow him as Lord, does moral failure kill us? Well, theologically, You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God, Ephesians 2. You're either in the presence of God or you are separated from God. There's no in-between. And we know that it's not our own good behavior that gets us in the presence of God, so our bad behavior isn't going to cast us out. Initially it does, certainly. Sin separates. That's what sin does. But in Christ, our sin is forgiven. It's not remembered anymore. So what does it do? If it can't really separate us from God, what does it do? Well, it certainly feels like there's a break in the fellowship. Does it not? I mean, (laughs) listen, for any of you who have been married, you know what it's like to, to make a mistake at home and for there to be some tension and you know that the mistake that has been made will not overwhelm the commitment you have for one another, but it doesn't mean it's nice going to sleep next to them each night when they're ticked off at you. It still feels awkward, and it is tense. You're not worried about whether they're going anywhere. That's not only true in marriage, but to some degree with God. He's not casting you out of his presence because you've made a mistake. But you feel a break in the fellowship. So for us, I think this is where the death comes in. Because on earth, we want to commune with God in a way that our conscience can be clear, knowing that our sins are paid for. But we're going to fellowship with him in heaven with a clear conscience for all of eternity. So we want that reflected on earth. It brings God glory to walk in holiness. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. So where does the death come in for believers? The death comes in the restoration. 
Okay? Here's what I mean. The death comes between, in the time frame, between the sin and the restoration. Okay? And by restoration, I'm not saying that you need to now be forgiven of your sin, as if, like, you just need to constantly be asking for forgiveness. Again, you're not cast away. But the restoration in fellowship. Okay, God, are we, like, I, conf- I, I recognize my sin. And I don't want to just sin against you and then go on as if nothing ever happened. You've got to be careful because there's all kinds of things that can happen in that moment to where you start to pay your way and do things that only Jesus can do on the cross. Okay, God, I'm going to give you ten Hail Marys. We'll be good again. You, you can't do that. Or God, if I just feel bad enough, somehow you'll be happy and say, okay, it's good. No, you just trust. You trust in what Jesus did on the cross. When you first come to Christ, if you're like most, you find that when you sin blatantly, unintentionally, but you know, man, I, am, I have fallen into temptation. There's been moral failure in my life. What do most of us do? We do what they did in the garden. We hide. We run. We feel guilt and shame. And some of us, if you remember back in the day, if you remember what that was like, wouldn't it be like days before you felt like you could come back and talk to God? And then you're probably really messed up because you might not even have known theologically, like, does he still love me? Does he not? I remember a year or two into my relationship with Christ, I honestly believed I was one or two sins away from God just leaving me. Like, I, I had that fear in my heart. I didn't know theologically. That's not possible. And so sometimes, now, now don't get me wrong, church, okay, when it comes to sin, God wants us, he wants us to repent. He doesn't want us, obviously, to sin. But for those of you who are in here and you are feeling the, the struggle of habitual sin, and you're just like, I don't know how this is going to change, and I am, I am just fighting it. Sometimes spiritual maturity looks like the distance between the sin and the restoration just gets smaller. Sometimes it goes from days Okay, I, I made a mistake, now I'm just going to run and hide from God for a while, and then, then I'm going to come back to him about three days from now. Sometimes spiritual maturity looks like, okay, now it's only a day. Sometimes it looks like, okay, now it's only just hours. And for those who are really, really struggling and they do not see how the power of the sin isn't going to overwhelm them anymore, sometimes even like for young men who are dealing with pornography, who are dealing with lust and issues like that, and they're just like, I, I don't know what to do. And we've tried everything, man. They're just trying to repent. They can't do nothing. Sometimes I'll even tell them, why don't you think of Jesus? If you fall into that sin, why don't you think of Jesus during that? I can't do that. Why can't you do that? Well, his presence kind of messes things up, right? Why don't you ask for forgiveness immediately after? Oh, I can't do that. No, seriously. You need to come face to face with his holiness, with his presence. Why don't you ask him what his response to this sin is in the middle of it or right after it? Not three days later, like right after it. Well, it's all fr- while the desire and it, while it's fresh in your mind. I'm not telling anybody to sin. Please do not hear me wrong. Please do not hear me wrong. You say, what does this do? You see, all temptation and falling into temptation always circles around unbelief. Like, we believe that somehow this is better than Jesus. 
That like if, if, I, if, I, if I have this physical need met, or if I just, eh, I don't want to gossip, but they're talking, and I'm just going to jump into it. I'm gonna, like somehow this is better than communion with the Father. Then you need to come face to face in the middle of it and see it right next to communion with the Father. Sometimes that's where the breakthrough comes from. I have to be careful as I say that, obviously, because I'm not, again, condoning sin. But I am condoning restoration being right smack dab in the middle of all of that temptation. this is why, this is why spiritual growth is crucial when it comes to restoration and, and not falling into temptation. Because as you experience Jesus as better and not just hear about it from preachers, then you can take whatever you're tempted with, knowing the truth sets you free, and you can tell the old enemy, I don't think that's better than what I got in Jesus. I don't think that's better. Some of you know, I'm guessing all of you know, I love Chick-fil-A. Talked about this a lot. I had heard for years people talking about Chick-fil-A and how good it was and how it was superior. And I remember the day it happened. I remember my first encounter with Chick-fil-A in Colorado Springs, Colorado, six or seven years ago. And I remember the first time I ate it, it was good, but it was not that good. I just I remember thinking like, wow, I had so much expectation for this, and I was so waiting for it, and it happened, and it was like, yeah, it's okay. I knew it was better than other chicken at that point, but I didn't like really, really, really defend it. And then I moved out to Virginia, and we lived just a few blocks from Chick-fil-A. And so on my way to seminary, I would stop, and I'd get a little butter biscuit, with some jam, and sometimes then I'd stop afterwards and get a chicken sandwich, and I found myself eating it, like, not just a couple times, but all the time. And then I had a a relative in D.C. who said, have you ever tried Chick-fil-A sauce? Because I was really loving it now. And then they're like, have you ever tried Chick-fil-A sauce? And I was like, no. Tell me about it. They told me about Chick-fil-A sauce. I was like, oh my gosh, how could I have been going to the same place but not experiencing that part of it? And so I started to eat Chick-fil-A sauce, and my mind was blown. And then we moved out to Utah, and then we went to the Chick-fil-A in Provo, Utah. And and I saw they had Polynesian sauce, and I said, what's that Polynesian sauce? And they said, here, some Polynesian. So I took my Chick-fil-A sauce and my Polynesian, and I dipped my fries in the Polynesian. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the best sweet and sour you will ever have in your life. I was like, Chick-fil-A sauce, Polynesian sauce, chicken sandwich, like mind-blowing. I remember just sitting in the mall looking at the mountains in Provo, just in bliss. We'd drive an hour and a half each way just to get there. That's just, that was our Saturday event. We're going to go Chick-fil-A three hours round trip over the mountain. I can tell you this right now. Don't you even think about giving me a chicken sandwich from McDonald's or KFC or any of the other places. But it has taken years for me to truly experience Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Come on, church, you know what I'm getting at. 
you may not honestly believe in your heart today that Jesus is better. But the more you meditate on him, the more that you grow in him, the more you will experience that he truly is better than anything you are tempted with. And then you're not going to be questioning what power you need. Because you changed. And you're walking in the spirit. Last but not least. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, again, her husband just dies, but it's the ark of God being captured that really broke her heart. <laughs> and then her father-in-law and husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Man, any of y'all don't you think about going to Washburn University? Like, do you really want to be an Ichabod? Think about the kind of loser mentality. I'm not saying Washburn's a bad school. Think about the loser mentality that's like, you know what? We just lost the biggest battle ever. Let's name our mascot. The glory of the Lord has departed. Like, seriously, we're the Ichabods. God hates us. I'm mean, like, I don't, seriously, Ichabods. There's so many other names. Anyway, so many other names saying the glory of the Lord has departed. Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Last but not least, God doesn't remember sin. God doesn't remember sin. So this girl is having early labor because of the incredible stress and turmoil that she's in. And she before she dies, seeing her baby, names him in remembrance as a reminder of what just happened. Kind of sounds like a downer, doesn't it? Like who wants reminders <laughs> of the sin that was committed and the battle that was lost? But how many times when you find, man, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer for this sin. Do you find yourself just sulking in regret? What's your response to your own sin? What's your response? Because God's answer is always the same. I forgive you. I love you. You cannot outrun my grace and you can't run it dry. It's a guarantee. I tell you what, you see this baby coming out and being reminded, being a reminder, a physical reminder that this is only getting worse. And I can't help but to think of Genesis 3 and the curse of all mankind when Adam and Eve son and God says, hey, you know what, man, you're cursed. You're going to be working the ground your whole life. And devil, you're cursed. You're, you're, gonna, you're just a punk. And, and woman, you're cursed. But hey, out of the woman, one day will be a baby that crushes the head of the serpent. Like in the curse, there's just a glimmer of hope that God had a restoration plan even way back then. Even way back then. And of course, that baby being Jesus changes everything. And so, you and I, in our sin, we got to be able to forgive and we got to be able to forget because that's what God does to us. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so are his sins. So are our sins. From us. God cast them away. 
far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 43, it says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, your sins, for my own sake. Remember, this is for God's glory. And remembers your sins no more. God's saying, hey, if I choose to remember your sin, the one last night, and the one two nights before that, and the one that you've been falling into for 500 days in a row, if I'm choosing to forget it, that means you need to choose to forgive it. Forget it. If I'm choosing to forgive, that means you need to choose to forgive. But here's the problem with earthly forgiveness and divine forgiveness, is earthly forgiveness always tends to remember, right? You know you've forgiven someone and you've given up your right to hold a grudge, but you know when you see them, you get the same bitter feelings that you had back in the day. So you're constantly having to choose forgiveness day after day after day. And divine forgiveness says, not only can I forgive you today, I can forget about that sin today. I am choosing to forget. God is not viewing your past sins like you are right now. And some of us have even set up for ourselves little reminders of all of our past mistakes. And God's saying, why are you doing against yourself what I chose not to do against you? Because if you want almost a guarantee that you're going to continue on in the same habitual sin that you got right now, why don't you put your focus on the reminders uh, of your past sin and not meditate on the power of the one who conquered sin? That's a good way to keep going on in the same sin and struggles you got right now. And God says, I didn't send my son so that you could sit there and have reminders over and over and over of all your la- lost battles. I sent my son that you, so you could focus on the one who conquered death, who conquered sin, and broke the power of it from your life. You may not feel the power or even experience it right now, but I'm telling you what, it's available for you. That power is there. I remember... When I was a convicted felon living in Hutchinson, Kansas, and I couldn't get a job anywhere, and I tried to get a job over and over and over and over, I could uh, dishwashing applications at restaurants. No one would call me back. Couldn't get an interview, but I started going to church there at Cross Point back in the day, and I remember someone said, "Hey, you could maybe do lawn care for um, this other guy who has a lawn care business in town." So I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And I came from the background where, like, you work hard and you're honest and you're just, man, you're just hardworking. So I didn't have a problem with the work. But me, being me, I started thinking. And within three weeks, I was like, you know what? We mow about 25 lawns a day. And I get, like, seven, eight bucks an hour. And this is hard. I could just do, like, five or ten lawns a day all by myself and get paid three times as much. Yeah, I think I'll do that. So I thought, I'm just going to start my own lawn care business. I'm not going to steal his customers. I'm not going to be a punk, but I ain't going to work for you. <laughs> and so I told him, I quit. And I remember feeling bad about it because in the time frame, uh, it was April, and I had to get on the ball. And so I didn't give him a two-week notice. And I remember that. And I, uh, just, I didn't like that. Still don't like it. But we, we talked about things. I thought we worked things out. I thought, like, okay, man, I hate to do this for you. Like, we had the conversation. I thought forgiveness was good. So I start the lawn care business, and it grows, and God is just, like, blessing it. And it grows the first year, and the second year, man, it doubles again, and the third year, it doubles again, and I, I bought a house, and, like, I've doubled my equipment, and now I'm looking at hiring people, and, and it was going well. 
But all around town, all summer long, I would see him. It seemed like every day I would see him driving with his crew. And he would see me, and I'm like, oh, this is awkward. This is sick. He knew I was. He knew what was going on. And he would look at me. He would do this number over at the steering wheel. He'd go, this is so awkward. So awkward. Every time I passed him, he would do it. I remember finally one time I was in a gas station. And he would fill up gas at the same place that I did. And I remember he walked in, and he just walked straight up to me. We're talking like three years after the fact. And he said, this is a full-grown man. And he got in my face, and he said, you'll never be me. You'll never be good enough. You'll never have what I have. And then he just went on a rant. I remember thinking, gosh, you're psychotic. But (laughs) apparently, we still got some forgiveness issues. Some of us. We run into people around town, and our past mistakes remind us of the relationships we're in right now, or some of the lack thereof, relationships that ended. Some of us got that criminal history that just doesn't seem to go away, reminding us of our past mistakes. Some of us have got friendships. We see them, and we go into restaurants, and we think, man, I don't talk to them anymore. Why? Because I did something stupid. Some of us have that debt and those bills that come monthly and think, how did I get myself into this? Some of us have that group of people always slandering and gossiping at work, and you would think since we've been there for so long now that they know I'm just not going to partake, but every single day I'm reminded of my sin because they welcome me right into those conversations because they know I'm going to partake. Every single day I go home and I see that same computer with the same images and the same sinful opportunities. And I'm reminded that I didn't have the power again yesterday, and I probably won't today. God's saying, I don't remember what happened yesterday. I don't remember what happened two days ago, not because because I don't have a memory, because I choose not to. And it's for his glory that he chooses not to. And so if you're going to struggle and sit in your guilt and your shame, you are in no position to have a need for Jesus being on the cross. You cannot pay through your own guilt and shame for, only, for, for the sin that Jesus paid for on the cross. And he's saying, church, you need to knock it off. You need to stop doing for yourself what I did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so I'll end it with this, because some of you are saying, what do I do if, if, if I have made mistakes, and I, because of circumstances, because of people, I am not allowed to forget? Well, you've got the same opportunity every one of us does. You can choose, no matter who you're with or what circumstances, or what reminders are right in front of your face, you can choose to be forgiven by the Father. You can choose to accept that forgiveness and forgive yourself. And you can meditate on the one who conquered the sin, not the sin you felt like you couldn't conquer yesterday. And you go back to the Father and you say, I know your spirit lives in me. I'm going to walk in that power today. And you become utterly submissive and dependent on the power he's placed inside of you through his spirit. It's a battle for integrity. God's given us the power. Let's pray.